It's taken two years, but now glyphosate's been relicensed. What happens next? This is not a case of job done. I think this issue is going to carry on. What we have to do is just keep fighting for evidence and science. More from CropTech in a moment. Plus, we'll find out what was discussed at the CLA's Rural Business Conference this week. And we've a new voice from Open Field. Uh, Kit Dickinson, and uh, I cover the area from Grantham to the Humber. More from Kit soon. Plus, it might be turning milder at the moment, but could we be snow? in this time next week Uh, we've detailed weather for you later the week in agriculture this is the farming program with sean dunderdale good morning ever since i uh, took over the reins of the program from sally elkington back in uh, early 2015 two things have really dominated debate in agriculture obviously brexit but also concern over the future of glyphosate the key ingredient in the world's best-selling weed killer This week, it was finally re-licensed, but for five years, rather than the 15 that many in the UK had wanted. So what do we make of it all? Guy Smith is Vice President of the NFU. I look, glass half full. Uh, after two years of protracted nonsense, uh, really pleased to see a five-year authorisation. Um, I'm really proud of the way the NFU lobbied so hard for this. I'm really grateful to all members, and I know a lot of farmers in Lincolnshire uh, went out their way to lobby MPs and MEPs. And you know that on-the-farm work was so important here to keep the British government on side. I mean, they were the largest nation really backing that uh, uh, rear authorisation. So well done uh, uh, farmers across the piece, particularly Lincolnshire, in helping us with that. Um, but glass half empty, we really wanted a 15-year reauthorization. The Commission had no grounds not to give it. They should have followed the EFSA and ECHA recommendation, and they didn't. And so looking forward, uh, this is not a case of job done. I think this issue is going to carry on, uh, and I think we're going to have to continue to fight hard to keep access to this crucial herbicide which we know as farmers delivers so much for the environment in terms of reducing tractor diesel uh, reducing the amount of gas we have to dry our crops with because they come in in a better condition uh, and above all gives us the ability to manage our soils more cleverly uh, with this uh, uh, herbicide than without so lots of good arguments but we've got to keep making them Indeed, in five years' time we could be here again, couldn't we? So, no, no, this isn't going away. No. Uh, the, the antis have already announced that, they will, that, that they're going to focus on Whitehall now. I mean, that's the point. Now we leave Brexit, their focus is going to be on UK government uh, and we've got to make sure that we are there with reasoned arguments explaining why we use it. So the lobbying continues. Guy Smith there of the NFU. I was uh, chatting with Guy on the first day of CropTech at the East of England showground this week. Another successful event, very busy on both days, even with the bitterly cold weather on Thursday. Also there was the NFU's senior plant health advisor, Emma Hamer, uh, speaking at a session on crop protection and answering the question, what does the future hold for crop protection? The future holds uh, a different way of looking at crop protection. We've relied on active ingredients and pesticides in the past and they've done a great job, but we have problems with resistance developing. We have regulatory pressures and political pressures. So what we need to do is look at all the uh, tools in the toolbox. So we have to look at IPM, we have to look at stewardship, we have to look at soil protection, doesn't mean to say we throw the pesticides out they still play a very valid role in uh, managing pest weeds and diseases but we can't rely on them alone. Mm. There's a lot of work to come isn't there? A lot of changes happening. 
Um, there are a lot of changes. There are regulatory pressures on actives. There are changes in uh, uses, so there'll be fewer crops that we could use them in. There'll be reductions in dose rates. We have to protect water, and we have to be mindful of how these pesticides get into water, which is where the work of the voluntary initiative is very important, because everything that they do to raise awareness of stewardship schemes uh, helps farmers, helps operators uh, best practice so that um, they're spraying things in the right conditions. And obviously, we always want the pesticide to stay in the field and do its job. We don't want it to get into the water. So I think everybody has to take a responsibility to raise awareness and to make sure that they are carrying out best practice on their farm. Speaking to, to Guy Smith, he was talking about obviously glyphosate, the decision on a Monday relicensing, but now really even more work is needed now to eh, keep up that lobbying, isn't it? Because in five years' time we could be here again. Well, the debacle uh, over the reauthorisation of glyphosate just highlights how the regulatory system in Europe is broken. Uh, glyphosate is a very safe molecule. It's been around for 40 years. It passed every safety assessment within Europe and EFSA, the Rapporteur Member State, everybody recommended that it should be reauthorised for 15 years. However, the science, the evidence that got lost in this process a long time ago and unfortunately, uh, the people who don't like GM, they don't like Monsanto, they don't like big business, they've used glyphosate as a way of, of attacking those, those systems. But what we have to do is just keep fighting for evidence and science. We shouldn't allow uh, polit politics to get in the way of the reauthorization of actives. Obviously, we all do lobbying, the NFU and the NGOs, but that shouldn't take place around the regulation, uh, the authorisation, uh, the SCOPAF meetings in Europe. That should take place within national governments. And I know you're talking about cereals um, next year, for example. You're talking with farmers about how they can responsibly use, not that they don't use it responsibly now, but how they can better use actives such as glyphosate to get that message across as well. Yes, yeah, stewardship is, is hugely important and I think what we need to do is we need to just work harder at getting messages out to all operators. So within the NFU I talk to lots of engaged farmers, lots of board members, they get it. What we need to recognise is that some of the spray operators might not be present at those meetings. So we have to use every method of getting to those people and making sure that best practice is being observed. I think the Neroso workshop is one of the best places to get to that because virtually every sprayer operator goes to that. Um, the agronomists are another the way the agronomists have to come on board with this both the AIC distributor agronomists and the independents uh, we need to all take a responsibility to get messages out to operators so that everybody is observing best practice finally here at CropTech you just had a full session lots of exhibitors as well since we have a lot of interest in in what's happening in the world of crop protection and, and crops at the moment yeah, there is a lot of interest. We're under the um, political spotlight. I think the, the, the glyphosate debacle has been watched from um, every, every member state and also it's got into the public domain. But this is an opportunity for us. This is a chance for us as farmers to show what we're doing, to show how responsible we are. Our operators among, are amongst the most highly trained and highly educated in the world. We are responsible people. We want to show responsible use of the pesticides that we use and we need to demonstrate that to the public to give them faith and confidence in what we're doing. Emma Hamer, the Senior Plant Health Advisor at the NFU, speaking there at CropTech. Emma mentioned the AICC and the importance of agronomists in the future of stewardship. Well, uh, our agronomist, Sean Sparling, is Chairman of the Association of Independent Crop Consultants and uh, knows Emma well. Yes, good morning, Sean. Always good value for money, Emma Hamer. I've spent an awful lot of time over the last 12 to 18 months in meetings with Emma um, talking about keeping glyphosate and neonicotinoid debate, the endocrine disruptor debate, metallohyde stewardship, etc. And quite often there'll be 30 people in the room and there'll be two voices 
voices that are heard louder than others and one of them will be mine the other one will be emma um so an awful lot of good people out there doing the job because it is now we've said this before a post-science society it just seems completely alien to me that people can say whatever they want about whatever they want and the general public dismiss all the science fact and just go with the hysteria people need to understand there are tens of thousands of weeds pests diseases mycotoxins bacterial infections which are all conspiring to reduce the amount of food we are capable of producing as a species and when you think there is only three percent of the world surface that grows all of the food for every man woman child and every animal that goes to feed every man woman and child you start to understand understand the scale of the problem now where we are in modern agriculture with people saying it's dangerous it's carcinogenic it's toxic if you liken that to modern medicine and homeopathy practitioners suddenly came out and said everything's dangerous it's too toxic for us it's carcinogenic we can use leeches and berries and poultices and the way we used to do things in the middle ages before uh, the last hundred years of scientific development gave us modern medicine we can do all that without modern medicine let's get rid of it imagine if the public accepted that premise and that's what happened that's how dangerous it is in modern agriculture at the minute because there are people saying we don't need pesticides we do need pesticides all they do is protect the yield and the quality of the food we produce that's all they are there to do they're not there to produce massive yields they're there to protect the yield we start with so it's a very difficult time i'm happy to eat any of the food i spray um, because i know how well regulated my industry is and i know how safe the advisors the products we use and the legislation is behind me to make sure that i'm safe doing that so uh, right let's move forward on to agronomy then it's uh, been an interesting week we've seen some frosts i'm sitting on top of the wolds at the moment looking across towards lincoln cathedral which shines in the morning sunshine and we've had about an inch of snow we've had some frost we've had some rain we've had some snow that's changed things somewhat since last week because we're now in a position where soil temperatures have gone from double figures at 10 centimetres down to around 6.4 degrees Celsius and it looks by the look of the forecast things are going to stay cold so those temperatures will remain low and start to fall even further. Couple that to the moisture in the top of the soil and we're now good to go when it comes to propizomide products. Now if you're using straight propizomide on its own you can go on a frost, you can go when the leaf's a bit damp but what you never should do with any propizomide product is go when the fields are waterlogged. When there's water standing in those fields stay out of them because only by stewarding the products we use we can show the public how sensible we are and how conscious we are of the effect we have on the environment because if you put it on a waterlogged field it can get into the water then we start to lose products because of uh, bad practice. We don't want that to happen. Remember, if you're using the aminopyrrolid product, the AstroCurb, you can't take the straw off the field. It can't be used for livestock bedding or feed. It must stay in the field. Now, the other thing is, you can go on a frost and you can go with a wet leaf. On a bigger canopy, they say that it will find its way down to the floor. I would always prioritise the crops with the worst black grass in them when it comes to provisomide use. Get it on well and get it on in good time before those plants get too big. And now the condition are cold enough you can crack on if however you're finding increasing levels of foma which we are in the field and you're getting past that one plant in five affected or one plant in ten affected on a more susceptible variety with foma then you need to include a fungicide and go for one which is capable of doing a little bit at the increasing levels of light leaf spot as well 
Um, but remember, you want to be putting the fungicide onto a dry leaf. So always go with the product which needs the driest leaf. Use that criteria when it comes to spraying. Um, slugs seem to have dwindled away quite nicely with the cold temperatures. They will be pushing down now into the profile. But again, keep your slug traps out and don't let your guard down. And the other good thing is on the cereal crops, which were real frothy and getting on with it, particularly early drill winter barley and winter wheat, where the levels of mildew in the bottom were causing some concern, you'll now start to see with these frosts that it'll be drying out that mildew and holding on to it. So don't charge out with the fungicide in cereals. The weather will be doing that job for you. The weather won't do the job on oilseed rape though. And where you've got yellow rust, it is not going to get cold enough, I don't think, at the moment to control that yellow rust, but it's not going to get any worse. Um, it actually takes temperatures so cold that they will physically kill the leaf that the yellow rust actually sits on before it will kill that yellow rust. So just monitor it. There's no need to be wasting your money on fungicides, on mildew and cereals, because the weather will be doing that. And as we go forward, we're going to start to see things just slowing down it's going to get a bit samey um i think it's fair to say that with a dust and the snow on the land this morning it really is beginning to feel a lot like christmas thank you sean sparling sparling agronomy services and chairman of the aicc it was the cla rural business conference this week the second such event held at westminster defra secretary michael gove was among the speakers and of course it was the first major speech for the new cla president tim brightmare ben underwood was at the conference as well how was it ben um, fantastic. We had um, upwards of 500 delegates, um, farmers, landowners from across the country. I must say a very good showing uh, in Westminster, in the Queen Elizabeth Centre, with, with tractors outside, um, really flying the flag for the future of agriculture and management of our countryside. Um, an excellent range of speakers, um, culminating in uh, the Secretary of State, uh, Michael Gove, giving a sort of keynote speech on where he feels the future is going. Did you get many answers uh, out of Mr. Gove? Uh, Not a huge amount. I mean, (laughs) it's quite clear that the direction for Michael Gove is now clear. It's moving away from um, the traditional sort of uh, support for production um, in the form of what we know currently as as BPS and moving towards um, public goods and and more accountability as to where taxpayers' money is spent. Um, And so that generally moves a shift towards a more environmental focus. But one of the points we did push on quite hard was we still legitimately think that high quality food production, um, where we know the provenance um, and and high animal welfare, is in itself a a, uh, public good. And therefore, we feel there should be recognition for that going forward. So there was a big debate around that. Not many clear answers. The one area that he did uh, confess to was the debacle around countryside stewardship and the government structure in terms of paying payments currently for environmental works, because if we are going to move forward on a base of, of rewarding landowners and farmers for what they deliver for society, we can't do so with the current format, um, as you well know, with late payments, no payments for many in countryside stewardship. So he announced um, on the platform that there would be a, a complete streamlining of all of that, which is, um, which is very positive, and we'll work closely to make sure that happens. Um, but other than that, I would say the general um, his speech was, was with the same old rhetoric. Um, I, I, my takeaway was perhaps a, another very clear uh, suggestion that he is in no doubt that the rural economy, uh, landowners, farmers, however you want to couch it, does, does warrant this sort of magnitude of payment going forward. The debate is just how it's done. 
And I think that's still a positive message we need to run with. The only area I think he was very light on was this was all sort of environmental, particularly for us in places like Lincolnshire, where many of my members say, well, environmental's all good. I do a lot for the environment, but compared with some place in the uplands, I don't have that much to go with. Um, and so I felt he was very light on how he will in the coming years or the government will support and promote productive agriculture. Um, and that's a whole range of things from investing in um, skills and training, technology, land use and markets, um, and so on. And um, that he was quite light on. So I think there's a, a big piece of work for us to do there, making sure that that remains high on the agenda and this doesn't become just all about the environment. Yeah, it is an important aspect, isn't it? And, and yeah, you, know, you, you will need answers on that soon, won't we? Well, yeah, quite. And I, and I think my fear, perhaps, potentially, is that with all the announcements he's made up until now, um, which have been very positive in many ways on some very big environmental issues sort of worldwide and plastics and, and, and various other and, and um, ivory, I think it's uh, quite concerning that he may just keep running on that environmental theme and forget the sort of importance of a, of a core agricultural industry in this country. Of course, uh, interesting location, really, for the conference, taking it to Westminster. I guess it's, it's good to get there at the heart of the decision makers, isn't it, to take it right to them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, we had a number of politicians and, and members of the House of Lords um, come to a, a reception after the conference to really just talk through the main points, which are redefining farming report highlights, which is, I would like to say, a very positive document in the sense that it's looking forward to the opportunities rather than looking back at some of the negatives. Um, and, and it also recognises that it's partly for the industry to up its game, but also we need the right levers and, and, and political uh, nouns to, to, to make sure that happens in the government. And of course, the first uh, major speech really of uh, the new president uh, of the CLA as well. He's, uh, I mean, we, we chatted with him obviously at Serials. He's really hit the ground running, hasn't he? He really has. And actually, I must say again, coming from this part of the world, um, Tim Breitmeier, our new president, is is very much a hands-on farmer. Um, he's, he's a serious expert on, on sugar beet. Um, he has a big arable unit himself. And so at this crucial time in the next uh, two or three years, it's really good to have him at the helm because he can really talk practical farming. Um, but also he has gone through the rigours of going into a countryside stewardship scheme. Um, he does a lot for the environment on his farm. And, and I think he really gets that key message that, we must go forward, make our industry more productive, but at the same time, deliver more for the public, but at the same time, be rewarded for doing so. Ben Underwood of the CLA. Right, someone new now to introduce to you, as uh, you heard at the start of the programme, a new contributor from Open Field. Actually, we have two. We'll meet the other one next week. Today, though, it's Kit Dickinson, who uh, covers a large part of Lincolnshire, from Grantham to the Humber for Open Field. Uh, what's the latest then, Kit? Well, this week uh, we had the AHDB early forecast for the wheat plantings, which indicates a 2% drop in area. This is across winters and springs combined, falling to a five-year low of 1.75 million hectares from last year's 1.79 million hectares. Uh, the survey estimated this is due to a higher area of spring barley and oilseed rate. Northeast and northwest mills continue to pay a higher price for old crop feed wheat, even though we have seen a temporary closure of the ethanol plant at Hull. So it is still down to the haulage rates to those northern mills to establish the best ex-farm price. UK wheat in the south of the country is closer to export parity and is trading at a discount to the north. 
Looking outside the UK, there are some weather concerns that are being closely monitored as the Northern Hemisphere's growing season progresses. This is enough at the moment to keep the buyers on their toes going forward. Milling wheat premiums are still 10 to £11, dependent on the area. Feed barley market is still flat, but does have some carry going forward. The domestic market dominates the north of the country, while exports in the south have slowed due to currency and cheaper French barley. Feed barley at present is trading at a 13 to £15 discount to feed wheat. At one stage, this was discounted by over £20 a tonne. Malting barley premiums are still holding up, dependent on quality, variety, area and the month of movement. To get a specific price, please get in contact with your open field farm business manager. The ore seed rate market. Old crop was very quiet due to a firm pound and lack of buying and selling interest. Consumers have little, if any, cover post-January. This week, the AHDB survey undertaken by the Anderson Centre estimated a 9% rise in ore seed rate plantings ahead of the 2018 harvest to 616,000 hectares. This follows a five-year decline and remains well below the record area of 2012 at 756,000 hectares. Locally, my feeling is this could be a little bit optimistic. The reason for a higher planted area could be due to autumn drilling conditions, better prices or less flea beetle damage, which has meant a high crop failure last year, especially in the southeast of the country. Beans, slow market this week, very little interest from the buyers. Any export demand has been limited due to high shipping costs. We have currently seen 100,000 tonnes downgraded from human consumption to feed due to poor quality. There is limited feed usage due to a mild autumn and plentiful feed stocks for ruminants. Feed beans are in fierce competition with other stocks due to the increase in feed bean availability, effectively meaning domestic homes are limited and the market is struggling. Moving on to prices, feed wheat full month December is 138 to 142 X farm. Feed wheat May 18 is 141 to 144. The carry has been eroded to a nominal 50p per month post-Christmas. Milling wheat premiums on old crop are 10 to £11, with new crop feed wheat prices for harvest at 133 to 135 X farm, and November 136 to 138 dependent on area. Feed barley, full month December is 122 to 124 feed barley May 18, 126 Malting barley premiums are still in the region of £30, dependent on area. Oil seed rape, £307 December, with £1 carry from January. And feed beans are 153 with again £1 carry per month through to May at 158 uh, Well done. It's always a bit nerve-wracking the first time you do it, but I uh, couldn't tell, could you? Well done. Uh, Kit Dickinson of Open Field. After snow and heavy frosts, it's turning a bit milder, but um, for how long? The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Well, I'd suggest you certainly make the most of the uh, mild weather. Certainly 10 Celsius, the high today. Should be uh, dry. The wind from the north-northwest, 10, gusting at 15 miles an hour. Bit of cloud first thing, but uh, mostly clear skies first thing tomorrow morning. 6 Celsius will be the overnight low, with the wind from the west-northwest, 10. Again, gusting at 20, maybe 25 miles an hour for a time. Patchy clouds, some sunny spells tomorrow. Still mild, though, 9 degrees the high. The wind from the northwest, 10 to 20 miles an hour. And then it's clear skies overnight Monday into Tuesday. Possibility of maybe a frost in places at lows generally of 4 Celsius, and the wind from the west at about 10 miles an hour. Some sunshine on Tuesday, but then clouding over. 7 Celsius, so a little bit cooler. The wind, more from the west-southwest again, 10 to 20 miles an hour. And then overnight again, a little bit cooler with clear skies. 5 the low. The wind from the southwest at 15, maybe gusting at 30 miles an hour.
For Wednesday itself, it looks like highs will stay around 9 Celsius, but it will be uh, that wind that's uh, bringing one or two problems. From the west, southwest, again, gusts of uh, 30 miles an hour. And then as we get towards the latter end of the week, that's when we're watching things at the moment. It will be particularly windy, and it looks like that wind is going to turn from the northwest, uh, maybe gusting at 50, 55 miles an hour. And that could bring either a heavy band of rain or, because of the direction of the wind, it could bring some particularly heavy snow uh, Thursday or Friday. We're going to just keep a check on that with the hourly forecast as the week continues but a bit of an early warning there could yet be more snow on the way and it could be heavier than the snow we saw in some parts in the week just gone so uh, keep a check on the hourly forecast certainly that is the forecast for now though next week uh, another newbie from open field will be here to uh, well we'll introduce her to you and with some money saving ideas for you as well because that's vital we're all working on tight margins and um it's a rewarding job now. There's lots of interest that you're looking at your job in more detail. And, and I think that quite a few of our customers are saying that it's making the job more interesting again now. We've gone away from big scale, big acres made easy. It's now looking at detail and saving every penny we can. The conversation I had with DEFRA was I asked who owned the water, uh, a bit of to and fro, and then they said God. And then when water lands on their land, it's the landowner's um, property until it ends up in ditches and things. So my theory is and solutions that we've designed are you know collect it before it goes into a ditch you've got free water something free in farming <laughs> if that doesn't pique your interest nothing will anyway more on that on the program next week until then have a good week's farming